If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journals, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 7. Luke in chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17 this morning in our time together. Luke 7, 1 through 17. We've been making our way through the gospel of Luke since about November. Last week we uh, finished the sermon on the plane in chapter 6, which will play a part in what we talk about this morning. Uh, so Luke and 7, it'll be behind me on the screen as well in my translation for you to follow along there. If you got it, say, I got it. Let's read this together. God's Word says, After he had, Jesus, finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but to say the word and let my servant be healed. For I to him a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, the man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave, to him, gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write its eternal truths in all of our hearts. When it comes to storytelling, whether in literature or visual media, foreshadowing can be one of the most powerful narrative devices that one can utilize. What is foreshadowing? Foreshadowing is a clue or illusion embedded in the story that predicts some later event or revelation. It could be wayward comments or action, an event that doesn't make sense until later. It could be ominous or mildly suggestive, or it could merely be obvious in hindsight. Let me give you a couple examples. Imagine me starting with this one. In Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Luke is being trained by Yoda, and he has a vision where he briefly fights Darth Vader, and he defeats him, and then Luke sees in Vader's helmet his own face. This foreshadowed the reveal later in the movie that Darth Vader was who to Luke? His father, something we all know now, right? But people watching for the first time would be shocked to learn it, yet the story had hinted early on that this was the case. In the dark night, District Attorney Harvey Dent says early in the movie, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Guess what happened later in the movie? He lived, so he became the villain, right? 
In the movie The Patriot by, uh, with Mel Gibson, his character tells his arch enemy, before this war is over, I'm going to kill you. And guess what he does? He kills him before the war is over. In the movie The Sixth Sense, Bruce Willis's character is shot in the opening scene. Then, a little later, the little boy tells him while looking right at Bruce Willis that he sees, what? Dead people who don't know they're dead. And, of course, it turns out that Willis's character was dead the whole time. Right? The revelation was shocking at the end of the film, but that truth was there the whole time. Via foreshadowing. And we go on and on, but the point is, foreshadowing can be a great device in storytelling by showing us what is to come through events in the present. What we have before us in Luke 7, 1 through 17, is two miraculous stories in the life of Jesus. But these are not simply some neat stories about Jesus healing people. Luke is telling us about these events because he's showing us how they foreshadow who Jesus is and what he has come to do, as well as fulfilling some foreshadowing that he has already done. These stories that truly happen that really are incredible miracles, are like enacted sermons. Jesus didn't heal simply for the sake of showing his power and authority. He healed to teach us something about the kingdom that he brings. What he does in these two short scenes points us to what has happened in the past and how Jesus fulfills all, as well as pointing us to what is to come in this gospel in Acts and beyond But even further, this is the foreshadowing that's going on here. Even further to the future, full and final consummation at the end of the age. So this is what we'll do in our time together this morning, all right? (laughs) Let's look at each scene in turn and explore in each scene how they point backwards and how they point forward, okay? So first, consider the scene number one from verses one through ten. We're told that after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Plain, He headed to Capernaum. Well, in Capernaum, there was a Roman centurion who had a dearly loved servant who was very, very sick, but not just sick. This was not an ordinary curable illness, okay? He's in desperate need of a miracle. Like, you remember in one of the greatest movies of all time, The Princess Bride, when our hero, Wesley, is captured. I know you've all seen it, so you'll get this reference. Wesley, our hero, is captured and tortured to the point where he's nearly dead. His compatriots take him to Miracle Max, hoping he could cure him. And Miracle Max says, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you could do. And Inigo asks, what's that? Miracle Max says, go through his clothes and look for loose change. The centurion servant is so sick, he is nearing death. He is mostly dead. If something isn't done, he will die, and there will be nothing left to do but look for loose change in his pockets. So some elders of the Jews come to Jesus and tell him about the centurion servant, and those elders of the Jews, you understand, they're like local civic leaders, all right, in Capernaum. And they were sent by the centurion because he, as a Gentile, is likely hesitant to ask a Jewish teacher like Jesus for aid, So perhaps he can curry favor with Jesus by sending some Jewish civic leaders. And what is their argument for why Jesus should help him? It tells us in verse 4, he is worthy to have you do this for him. And then they say, why, don't they? He loves our nation. 
He built us a synagogue. So the Jews say the centurion is worthy of having Jesus do this for him on the basis of what he's done for the city. See, centurions, since they, you know, represent the occupying force, would sometimes do things like build a synagogue out of their own pocket in order to win some favor from the locals that they are occupying, okay? And this is what the centurion did for them. He is worthy, say the Jews. So Jesus starts heading towards the centurion's house with them. But then what happens? In verse 6, we see that now the centurion has sent friends to talk to Jesus. And they say something very different, don't they? They say in verse 6 through 8 that the centurion does not feel worthy for Jesus to even come to his house. So the centurion's friends say what? The opposite of what the Jewish leaders do. And his friends speak more profoundly, of course, and accurately for him than the Jewish leaders do, who apparently went into business for themselves. And not only does he admit his unworthiness for Jesus to come to his house, he expresses incredible faith, doesn't he? Saying that Jesus does not even need, do you see that? He didn't even need to come to his house in order to heal his servant. The centurion's friends illustrate this, of course, by saying that he has, he has authority also under his command. The centurion tells his troops to do something, and they do it. So he recognizes Jesus as someone who has authority, who can command, and it will be done. But what does Jesus have authority over, according to the centurion? Well, everything, right? Every, even the unseen forces, even illness and health and death. The centurion profoundly recognizes that Jesus is someone sent by God who has power even over the elements. So what does Jesus do? Heals the servant. Just like this, without going to the centurion's house. And did you notice, he heals the servant without even saying a word. Not only did he heal from a distance, he healed without performing any visible act at all. That's the kind of authority and power Jesus has, even over sickness and death. But now we ask the question, why? Why did Jesus heal the servant of the centurion? The Jews say, well, you should do this because he's worthy. He's a swell guy. He builds the synagogue. But the centurion isn't worthy, and he knows it. In fact, as mentioned, the centurion is someone who works for the occupying army. He isn't in Capernaum because he just likes being there, right? Or he has a vacation house there. He is there because Rome sent him there to show the force of Rome and to squash any uprising that might come from the people to show them who's boss. Think of the situation in Ukraine right now. Why are there Russian troops there? They're there to try to occupy, yes, that country. They're there because a mad tyrant has aspirations of glory. The Russian troops, they're, they're, they're not friends there, are they? They aren't there for vacation. They're there to occupy a nation. They are the enemy. And every move they make is an attempt to oppress the Ukrainians. Merely seeing Russian troops in Ukraine reminds the locals of the evils of Russia and their attempt at occupation. That's what the sight of Roman soldiers would do to first century Jews in Palestine. It can't be that Jesus healed the servant because the man is worthy. He's a Gentile Roman soldier. He's a pagan. According to the Jews at the time, to even enter a centurion's 
house, a Gentile's house, would make you unclean just by walking through the door. This man doesn't deserve Jesus' healing of his servant, not at all. The centurion is right, isn't he? He is not worthy. So why did Jesus do it? Let's look backward. What did Jesus say in 627? If you have your copy of the Bible, go to chapter 6, one chapter up, and look at verse 27. You know what he said? Love your enemies. Didn't he? He said, love your enemies, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus taught that true kingdom, true love in the kingdom is to love not only those who love you back, but to love those who are unworthy of your love. And that love is expressed through actual deeds. Jesus is simply living out, yes, what he commanded. Again, the centurion might, he might have been a swell fella. But there's no escaping the fact that he is a high-ranking member in the occupying army. Add to that fact that he is a Gentile and a pagan and that he is wealthy and you have three or four barriers between him and Jesus. But Jesus is willing to cross barriers in order to do good to people outside of the kingdom in order that they might what? Come in. Do you see? And so Jesus' actions here are in effect saying to us, learn from this. This is why he doesn't he turn to all who are near and says in verse 7, I haven't seen faith like this in Israel. He's saying, I told you to love your enemies. This is what it looks like. He's saying, I told you to have faith. This is what it looks like. Jesus is telling us to love across lines. He's saying to cross natural barriers in order to do good for people, especially those who are unworthy. See, Jesus is not impressed by the centurion's deeds that are reported to him by Jewish leaders. And neither should we be impressed by people's standing and stature, nor influenced by people's wealth or what they could do for us or for the church by worldly standards. That kind of partiality is a sin and has no place in the community that is to represent Jesus' otherworldly kingdom. Nor should we be prevented from intentionally going across natural barriers that, or the ones the world has set up in order to reach and love people. What, is, what Jesus is impressed with if not the centurion's deeds and status. He is impressed by the centurion's feeling of what? Unworthiness. And his faith that Jesus can do anything he wants. Even healing someone who is on the brink of death from a distance. And the question to us is then is, do you love like this? That's the question that this is staring, that's staring all of us in the face. Do you love like this? And do you have faith like this? This is how Jesus points forward, because through him, God is doing a new thing. And what is that new thing? It's bringing in people into the kingdom from all kinds of ethnicities and social classes and peoples and languages and nations. It's point, it points us forward to Acts, where we see the gospel expanding into nations even to another centurion, right? In Acts 10. This is a foreshadowing that Jesus' kingdom knocks down societal barriers and that the way to get into the kingdom is not through race, ethnicity, or by being from a particular place or nation. All are welcome into the kingdom of Christ 
if they would see their own unworthiness and Christ's worthiness. So he's pointing forward to us too, isn't he? He is saying to you, disciple of Christ, you must love natural enemies. You must intentionally reach out to people you would not naturally be associated with. The church is to be an outpost, an embassy of heaven that looks like a mosaic of people who would, quite frankly, not be around one another if not for the gospel. Jesus says here, I did it, you do it too, and in this way you're representing the otherworldly kingdom I bring and the ethic that I embodied. Let's illustrate this. My mentor told me a story that I think gets to this. Before I met him, he was the pastor of FBC Del Rio, Texas. Okay? And if you aren't familiar with Del Rio, it's a border town. Okay? It literally touches the Mexican border. But when he got to FBC Del Rio, the church was overwhelmingly Anglo. Well, my mentor, his name is Jeff, is someone who sees Jesus' example and the gospel call to reach across ethnic and social divisions. And he started to minister to a Hispanic man named Julio Gonzalez, who's just covered in tattoos. He has tattoos on his face. He has 666 on his forehead. And on top of that, Julio spent half his life in prison for conspiracy to commit murder and for smuggling drugs. Now, most people probably would not go near him. You think that's fair to say? Most respectable Christians would not want to have anything to do with him. But Jeff did. Jeff didn't care that he was covered in tattoos. Jeff didn't care that he had a past. Jeff didn't care that he was of a different ethnic and social background as him. Jeff saw him as an image bearer of God who needed the gospel. And so he ministered to him, and guess what? Jeff got to lead him to Christ, and Julio was baptized. The church started to reach the border population, and they quadrupled in size because of it. But you know it was costly, don't you? It's usually costly to love enemies, isn't it? Some in the church didn't like it. They tried to get Jeff fired for, and I quote, attempting to make it a Hispanic church. But that didn't work, and the church continued to see growth. Why? Because they stepped out... Yes? And reach people who weren't like them. Because the gospel compels them to do it. And compels us to do it. It calls followers of Jesus to that work. And the gospel, doesn't it transform? Jesus says, love your enemies. And he showed us how. So we must do likewise. And we're motivated toward enemy love because not only did Jesus model it here and elsewhere, but because he modeled it towards us. Did he not? Our inclusion in the gospel isn't because we merited it, is it? Through our ethnicity or status or class or heritage. Our inclusion in the gospel is because Jesus' kindness towards the unworthy. Because of Jesus' love and doing good to us, the enemy. You know, you will rarely see Jesus marvel at anything in the gospels. What he does here and why? Because of the faith of the centurion who knew he was unworthy of Jesus. For us to get the gospel, listen, we got to see the same thing. 
our unworthiness of it. That's the irony of it all, isn't it? To get the gospel, to get Jesus, you must first to come to a place where you realize that you are not worthy of him. And it is then that you could truly see that Jesus can do a miracle, the greatest miracle of all, bringing the unworthy, the outsider, the outcast, the undeserving into his marvelous kingdom. Actually, the kingdom, did you know this, is exclusively for the unworthy. So long as we feel worthy, we'll be outside of it. We have to get to a place of realizing our unworthiness if we're to get the gospel. But that's no, that's no easy task, is it? We live in a culture of earning, don't we? We think a lot of what we deserve. We talk disparagingly of people getting what we think they don't deserve or didn't earn. Isn't that true? Why is it, for example, that we mock so-called participation trophies? Why do we make fun of that? Because we think about what we deserve all the time. We think if you are to get it, you got to earn it. You got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We prize and champion self-made people and look disparagingly on those who we feel aren't making their own way. And that is why it's so hard for us to get the gospel. Because we don't have a category for unmerited grace and free forgiveness. Even people who know the gospel can't seem but to talk about their resume and achievement and religious records. It's like we can't help it. One of my favorite quotes, Robert Capone said, grace doesn't sell. You could hardly even give it away because it only works for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. We don't feel unworthy because we don't realize how much of a gap there is between us and God. We don't realize that we can't earn kingdom entrance through our deeds through our family lineage, through our reputation, or our bank accounts, but we must get to that place if we're to get Jesus. We need to see that apart from God, our hearts are dark places in need of renewal, and that hearts that dark can't possibly merit anything. And hearts that dark can't reform themselves. They need someone to come into them and replace them. I'm reminded of an illustration Kent Hughes gave. He said, before the 17th century, when people looked at a lake or a pond or a glass of water, they judged if it was clean if they could see through it. Okay, if you can see through it, they're like, it's clean. But in 1674, this Dutchman filled a glass vial with water, and he began looking through it through his newly acquired microscope lens. And he saw, as he quaintly put it, very many small animalcules. He then examined a drop of water and he jotted down his findings. This is what he said. I now saw very plainly that these very little eels or worms lying all huddled up together and wriggling, just as if you saw with a naked eye a beautiful tubeful of very little eels and water, and the whole water seemed to be alive with these multifarious animalcules, is what he said. If we're to be brought into the kingdom, we need to turn the magnifying glass of God's word onto what is inside our hearts. We don't need to stand back and look at ourselves through the world's measurements of what a so-called good person is, <laughs> or our own measurement of our own obsession with earning. We need to see what God says. And once you see that, what God's holy standards are, we shouldn't help but to gasp at all the creepy, crawly things in our own hearts. It's only then that we'll be able to say like the centurion, I am unworthy to be visited by Jesus. 
but please heal me anyway. And you know, if it stopped at a simple recognition of sinful unworthiness, that would be bad news, wouldn't it? But it doesn't stop there because once you realize your unworthiness, you can then get to a place that has faith that Jesus can overcome the odds and save even a wretch like you and me. The faith that, like the centurion, doesn't need to see Jesus physically to know that he can heal you. And that your deepest need of healing isn't physical, but spiritual. And we should never, ever move or mature past this gospel humility. Never move past the astonishment that Jesus would save even us. Never get to a point where we are not flabbergasted that Jesus visited the unworthy. Is that not the miracle of miracles? Is not the gospel the miracle of miracles? That you are saved is the miracle of miracles. Isn't it amazing that Jesus can heal someone on the brink of, a, of death from a distance without so much speaking a word? But truly, that's child play to Jesus. He's the self-same God who created the universe by speaking, right? To heal the sick, that's an easy thing for Jesus to do. But to bring unworthy sinners into the kingdom with no effort on their part, bringing nothing but a bankrupt bank account and filthy rags, friends, that's the miracle that surpasses all miracles. Never move past being astonished that Jesus would bring you in. Maturation in Christ will not cause you to suddenly feel worthy, where at one time you knew you weren't. <laughs> Maturation in Christ is growing sense of your unworthiness and responding to that amazement with a life poured out for Jesus because he's worthy of all praise and glory and honor and sacrifice. Is he not? But now we must move on to scene number two, which you see from verses 11 through 17. Luke tells us that soon after this encounter, some translations say the very next day, Jesus was in a town called Nain, which is about 30 miles from Capernaum. As Jesus is walking, he sees a funeral procession of a young man who died. We might say, I read this in one commentary, I love this, the way of life meets the way of death. And notice that Luke notes that the young man was the only son of a widow. Do you see that? Why? Well, because we're talking about a culture where women were fully independent on the men in their lives, right? This woman was dependent on her husband, but what happened to him? He died. So the care fell to her son. And she only had one, but now what? He's dead, so she has nothing. She has no way to be cared for. It's not like in our society where there are programs that can assist someone in helpless situation like this. She is now totally at the bottom of the societal rung. In fact, you know, in the Old Testament, widows and orphans were portrayed as the most helpless in society. And Israel was constantly rebuked and punished for their lack of care for widows and orphans. So we must imagine her plight and picture this mournful scene. On top of the fact that she's a widow and her son has died, we must remember that in Israel, people were buried usually the same day they died. So this woman has almost no time to grieve for her only son. And is probably on top of that worrying how she's going to survive. And Jesus sees this happening. He sees her grieving. 
He knows her situation. He feels compassion literally from the guts, from the center of his being, and he acts, doesn't he? Jesus moves towards the procession, and he stops it. Don't miss this, okay? Jesus literally enters into the funeral procession. He enters into the widow's pain, and he looks at the widow, and he commands her, do not weep, which seems like an absurd thing to say, right, to someone who is in the widow's situation, doesn't it? Don't cry. Like, haven't you had someone tell you when you were sad, don't be sad? Or when you were worried, don't worry. Or when you were anxious, relax. Or when you were nervous, don't be nervous. And you probably thought, gee, thanks. Why didn't I think of that? Just stop? Okay, I didn't know I could just not worry. But when Jesus says, don't weep, he's saying it from a place of compassion and signaling that I'm about to do something. It's not that weeping is wrong, right? Of course she should weep. And Jesus feels compassion and sorrow along with her. Weeping isn't wrong. It's called for in this situation. It's signaling that there's something not quite right with the world. But Jesus is about to do something amazing, isn't he? Not only that, but readers of Luke would be clued in why Jesus says, do not weep to the widow. Again, he's pointing backward as well as forward. What what does chapter 6 verse 21 say? That's the, you know, if you're reading Luke's gospel, the last time we saw the word weep, it's in that verse. 621. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus, again, is applying the sermon on the plane for us. This miracle is another enacted sermon. What he's going to do? He's going to give the widow a taste of the kingdom by turning her tears into laughter. Jesus reaches out, he touches the funeral bear, which is like an open coffin or a plank where the shrouded and anointed corpse would lay, which would make anyone else but Jesus ceremonially unclean, right? But remember what we said when we looked at the healing of the leper, Jesus can no more be made unclean by touching the unclean than can the sun be defiled by rising on the polluted world. Jesus never becomes unclean, his cleanness overrides uncleanness. Then Jesus talks to the corpse directly and says, Young man, I say to you, arise. And again, if it were anyone but Jesus saying this, it would be a cruel jest to tell a corpse to get up. But Jesus is doing, he's confronting death itself. He first stopped it in its tracks, then he reverses it. Again, the way of life truly meets and confronts the way of death. Three simple statements, note it, mark the healing. One, the dead man sat up, which shows the effortless healing of Jesus. Two, he begins to speak, which shows that he really did come back to life. And three, Jesus gave him back to his mother, which shows that Jesus restores broken relationships. But this phrase from verse 15, I want you to note, if you write in your journal or your Bible, underline this, Jesus gave him to his mother. That's supposed to evoke another image in our minds, in the minds of the original hearers and readers. It's supposed to take us all the way back to 1 Kings 17, when Elijah raised the son of a widow. And the phrase, gave him to his mother, is said there verbatim. But for Elijah, he had to cry out to God. If you remember the story, he had to stretch himself three times over the child as he pled with God to bring him back from the dead. In contrast, what does Jesus do? He walks up, he merely walks up to the funeral plank, touched it and told the young man to come to life. No stretching over the body of the corpse, no pleading with God, just a word and it's done. 
This is the kind of power that Jesus has, even over death and life. This shows us that through Jesus, God is doing a new thing. So in verse 16, when the people say, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people, they're right. They just don't know how right they are. God really had visited them. But unlike a prophet who was merely a vessel of God, Jesus was God in flesh. And friends, he wasn't merely doing a miraculous thing for this one family. But he was showing that the kingdom of God really had arrived. And this is what a foretaste of what is to come through Jesus. What's to come? One day Jesus is going to stop every funeral procession. Do you know this? His kingdom has arrived. And one day, when it arrives in fullness, there'll be no funeral planks. No no processions to the grave. No sorrowing family. No mourners gathered around a tomb. Just life provided through this Jesus. You know, several years ago, during my undergrad, I went to, with my college to Israel. And one of the places I was looking forward to the most was this place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Okay? It's one of the sites that is traditionally thought to house Golgotha and the tomb of Jesus. When I got there, I was a bit disappointed <laughs> because it was filled wall to wall with people who were sad. Everybody there was sad. Like you go upstairs to where the cross was supposed to have been and people were like lined up to crawl under this table to touch this exposed piece of rock, and they're weeping, and they're dejected. Now, here's the thing about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If you were to go to a local Arab Christian and say, can you point me to the Church of Jesus' tomb in Arabic, he he or she wouldn't know what you're talking about. They'd be totally confused. But if you asked him or her to point you to the Church of the Resurrection, they'll know exactly what you mean. You know why? Because those Arab Christians saw that place as a place of joy and life. Not a place of weeping and mourning, because to them, that's where death and sin were defeated. It was a place of joy and resurrection, not sadness. Jesus isn't still dead, is he? He's alive. And that changes everything. They know through Jesus' resurrection that one day he will fully put an end to all funerals and all weeping and all mourning. This scene is pointing us to the hope that we talked about a few weeks ago on Easter. Not just that this young man was brought back to life and given back to his mother, not even just that we can have hope for the future, but that Jesus intends to reverse, restore, and renew. And that every sad thing really will come to be made untrue. What else can 621 enacted here mean except the promise of reversal of fortunes? Those who mourn will see their weeping turn to laughter. And he does it for this widow, and he'll do it for you too, if you place your hope in him and give him your allegiance. What he's showing here is that death is not the end for those who are part of his kingdom. Just as Jesus called out to the young man and told him to arise, he will call your name too. He'll call your name too and say, come forth at the end of the age. So for those in Christ, death is not the end of the story, is it? You know, many, many years ago, on a mission trip to Thailand, Ken Parks, or Keith Parks, who was then president of the International Mission Board, he said he saw a a Buddhist funeral procession. And as it moved down the street, mourners waved huge fans over the casket of the deceased. And on the fans were inscribed slogans that expressed the Buddhist view of life in the beyond. One was inscribed with the words, Gone never to return. On another, asleep, never to awaken. 
and on another, no hope. That's a dismal view, isn't it? But it's not reality for those who are in Christ, who know that death has not ultimately won. Since Jesus lives, those who are his will rise as he was raised. As George Herbert wrote long ago, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. But death is still the enemy. And this is why Jesus sees the woman and has compassion for her, right? It's the same reason Jesus knew he was going to bring Lazarus back to life, but still wept. Jesus is angry that death of Lazarus and James on John 11 in his gut, and he is sad for the widow here because the state of things brings him sorrow. It angers Jesus that sin has ravaged all of life and that we have to be sorrowful over things like death because this is not how things are supposed to be. Do you realize that? You know, we say stuff like, death is natural. Is it? Is it natural? It's not supposed to be natural. Death is an intrusion into how things were created to be. There was no death pre-Genesis 3. The curse of sin has ruined everything. We shouldn't have things like gold pandemics and fear and death and war and division and sorrow. That's not God's created purpose. But because of sin entered the world, we live with all these bad things and all the consequences of it, but not forever. Jesus intends to reverse all of that. That's why he came. And this is what he's showing us here. But isn't, some, isn't it something that we're told that Jesus sees this widow and he has compassion for her? Does that move you? He sees her and he takes the initiative to go to her. And he takes the initiative to stop the procession. And he takes the initiative to speak to her and to speak to the young man and to bring him back to life and hand him back to his mother. No one asked him to do that. He just did it. Because Jesus isn't just all powerful to where he can heal from a distance and call corpses back to life, but he cares deeply for people. Especially those at the bottom of the society like this widow. Especially those who are on the outside of the kingdom and realize their unworthiness like the centurion. He enters into their pain. He feels with them, and he did something about it, and he'll do something about it fully one day. You know, today, of course, is Mother's Day, and it's a day where we celebrate all the moms in our lives, right? And generally, it's a day we're told should be a day of sheer celebration, right? But you know something? Mother's Day isn't celebratory for everyone. Do you know that? And for many people, a day like today is lined with sorrow. Sure, there may be joy, but for a lot of people, Mother's Day reopens wounds that never quite healed and probably never will. Some people grieve today. People suffered miscarriages, those who struggle with infertility, those who are facing Mother's Day without their mother, whom they lost, those who have lost a child, whether when they were small or when they were Adults, those who have been widowed, those who have broken relationships with their moms or are estranged from them, those who have regrets or, or those who feel a mixture of joy and tremendous pain and more. What about them? What does Jesus say? What does he have to say to those who hurt on a day like today when we're told to just celebrate? Jesus says in the midst of this, I see you. I truly see you. Not only... Does he see you externally? He sees your heart. 
and your mind and your pain, and he feels compassion from the very center of his being, and he enters into the pain too. We see that here, don't we? As the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help of help in time of need. He's been there. He's felt the loss and the pain of death. He's felt abandonment and loneliness. He's felt forsakenness. He felt it all, and he feels deeply for those who are his even now. Puritan Thomas Goodwin says that Christ co-suffers with us, that Christ is inclined from his own heart and affection to give us help and relief, and he is inwardly moved during our suffering and trials with a sense and fellow feeling of them. Dane Orland adds, if you are in Christ, you have a friend who, in your sorrow, will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. Isn't that wonderful truth? Not only does he feel compassion for you, but he's in a position to do something about it. He has storehouses of grace for you that can't be exhausted. You have a better luck emptying the ocean with a teacup than exhausting his grace and kindness. On top of that, he plans to reverse the pain. He plans to bring to fullness a kingdom of renewal and restoration and reversal in a place of resurrection like he was resurrected, where tears and sorrows will be fully and finally cast away. If you feel sorrow today or any other day because of the pains and loss of life, do weep. And do go to Jesus, but also be reminded that those tears this glorious Christ intends to turn to laughter one day. And so even in sorrow, we can rejoice because death is not the end. For Jesus has secured our resurrection. And how? How is that incredible future secured? Well, you know, not only does the scene of the raising of the widow's son point forward to you and me and to eternity, but it also points forward to Jesus' own life, doesn't it? You know, after the birth narratives of Jesus and his early teenage years, we never hear about Joseph again. Have you ever noticed that? We never hear about Joseph again. And many believe Joseph died when Jesus was a teenager, leaving Mary a young widow. You fast forward to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, and Mary is there, seeing her son crucified, though innocent, on behalf of the world. And Mary is there where God's only son, when her son is on a funeral plank, and when he's buried, weeping and full of sorrow. And she didn't understand it yet, but Jesus intended to defeat death through death. Three days later, Jesus turned her weeping into laughter, didn't he? Just like he said he would. He rose from out of the dead, and he defeated death. He showed that not even the grave could hold him. And he did that in part to secure your resurrection, to reverse the curse, to one day make all things new. I wonder, friend, do you know that? Do you know him? This section of Luke is asking the question, who does Jesus think he is? And in that question, we're confronted with one we all must answer. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you think Jesus is? That's the most important question you will answer in your life. Do you see that spiritually? Apart from him, we are as dead as the young man in this story. 
that apart from a move of God, we could not will ourselves to life. And unless we take on the humility that says, I am unworthy to be in Jesus' presence, we will stay spiritually dead. And if we don't come to Jesus with our nothing before we physically die, we will be eternally lost forever with no hope. But if you will admit that you are unworthy of God, that you are bankrupt and lost, that you are spiritually dead without him, then you could hear his voice even now saying, get up, come forth, be made alive. And if you know him, if you've been brought into spiritual life by him, if you've brought to him your nothing, do what the people do in verses 16 and 17. Be amazed and never move past that amazement. Miracle of miracles, Jesus has saved even me. And glorify God with your whole life from your work to your play to your relationship to your church-like life. Make everything about Jesus. And glorify him with all you have because you've seen who he is and what he's done. God, as they said, truly has visited us. He has himself come down and done the unthinkable. He has died in the place of wayward sinners and he has arisen to offer us the same. And so let us also, if we know him, spread the report about him like they did throughout all the city and the surrounding county. This gospel is too good to keep to ourselves. Today, be amazed at Jesus. Behold his glory. See his compassion and his heart towards the undeserving. Rest your hope in what these stories point to and let that inform and transform your whole life. For your good and for the glory of so loving and compassionate and powerful a king as Jesus.